welcome to the Vespasian Warner Library District podcast. Wednesday, July 13, 1910, Clinton, Illinois Police Chief John Struble was murdered while attempting to apprehend a sneak thief. While rumors and speculation circulated, it took three years of investigation and searching to capture the man thought to be responsible. Not only did the trial not bring a successful conclusion to the mystery, but it, in part, also led to the death of another police chief. John A. Struble was born in Dixon, Illinois, and moved with his parents to Storm Lake, Iowa at the age of 20. There he met and married Ida McCord and worked as a city marshal. The couple later moved to Clinton with their two children, Harry and Marie. His career led him to being appointed street commissioner and superintendent of waterworks by Mayor Edmondson. Two years later, he was appointed police chief, in addition to working as the chief of the volunteer fire department for a period. Chief Struble was a prominent member of the community, a member of the Masonic Order, Modern Woodmen, Court of Honor, and Eagles. The consensus was that Struble was a good officer, thorough in his duty, brave and careful. He endeavored not to injure anyone he arrested. However, many believed that even though he was careful in his work and his handling of suspects, he wasn't careful enough when it came to his own safety. And that may have gotten him killed. A couple of weeks prior to that fateful July evening in 1910, Mr. Albert Sant, manager of the Clinton Gas and Electric Company, noticed that the icebox on his back porch had been broken into and some items taken. Thinking it was nothing more than the work of some boys, he dismissed it. However, when the icebox was raided again a couple of weeks later, he informed Chief Struble of the trouble. The two men performed a stakeout that evening, utilizing the residence of neighbor Miss May Hartsock, which was being remodeled at the time. The two men surveilled Mr. Sant's back porch, which was lattice-covered, the door secured with a hook. During the course of the evening, the two men witnessed another man trying to open the lattice door of the porch. Mr. Sant wanted Chief Struble to shoot the thief, but the chief didn't feel the crime warranted it. He also refused to allow Mr. Sant to shoot him. The man soon left without gaining entry, and not long after, thinking the thief gone for the night, the two men also departed, Chief Struble returning to the square and Mr. Sant returning home. However, in the morning, Mr. Sant found the thief had returned, cutting the lattice to open the door and once again steal from the icebox. It was puzzling that a man would return to the same residence over and over to secure food, but the only way to solve the mystery would be to catch the thief. On the night of Wednesday, July 13th, Chief Struble once again took up position on the Hartsock property, this time accompanied by his night captain, Tony Musser. Once again, the thief appeared, but he didn't immediately attempt to enter the porch, instead wandering around the yard. Captain Musser wanted to shoot at him, but Chief Struble wouldn't allow it. The man then disappeared for a bit, and then reappeared. At about 11.25 p.m., the man walked near to where Chief Struble and Captain Musser were hiding. He stopped about three feet away, his back to them. This was their opportunity to nab him. Chief Struble made a grab for the man. However, he was a larger gentleman, and he simply walked away with the chief clinging to his back. He made it about 15 feet before Captain Musser joined the fray, and the three men toppled together. Chief Struble landed on the man's shoulders, and Captain Musser had him around the legs. Yet the man was still strong enough to partly raise up and pull a revolver from his pocket. 
Pointing it over his right shoulder, the would-be thief fired, striking Chief Struble in the head. He fell back, and Musser loosened his grip in shock, allowing the man to crawl away and get to his feet. Musser fired at the fleeing suspect, who dropped to his hands and knees for a moment before continuing his flight. He ran around the house from the west and past the home of Mr. Samuel Wade and around the house of J.D. Scott, dodging into the east end of the alley. He stopped there for a moment, not 100 feet from where Chief Struble lay. W.J. Carroll, who just returned from his run as engineer of the Central, saw the assailant across the alley from J.D. Scott's place, and it seemed to him that the man was considering which way to run or possibly listening to the commotion to ascertain the state of his victim and the pursuit. The man then ran southwest across Carroll's garden, disappearing into the night. Dr. G.S. Edmondson arrived on the scene and had the wounded police chief taken to his sanitarium. The bullet had entered Chief Struble's head just above and a little in front of his right ear, tearing through his skull and exiting the top of his head on the left side, crushing the skull and creating a large hole. There was nothing that could be done for him. At 5.30 a.m., Chief Struble finally succumbed to his gunshot wound, never regaining consciousness. Meanwhile, the search was on for his killer. Officers began an immediate search, and within an hour of the shooting, two bloodhounds from Decatur arrived. They tracked the killer's trail west to the city limits, but it was lost in Sprague's pasture. Officers in nearby towns were put on alert. Early the next morning, it was discovered that a horse belonging to a bookkeeper at Warner's Bank, Mr. Luttrell, had been stolen. Speculation quickly turned to the murderer as the horse thief, looking to make a quicker getaway. The lines attached to the bridle had been cut to form a riding rein, and the overcheck rein had been cut away completely. The saddle was left behind. A portion of the leather that remained in the barn apparently bore the teeth marks of the thief as he bit down on the lines to hold them as he cut them. The horse was later found three miles northwest of Clinton at the home of Richard McCown, the thief having ridden it until it gave out. Before noon, a witness had come forward to state that he'd seen a man ride swiftly through D-Land about 20 miles east of Clinton at 2 o'clock in the morning, but it was unlikely this was the man they sought. A report also came in that a likely suspect had been arrested 20 miles to the west in Atlanta, but despite the close description, Deputy Sheriff Samuels and Captain Musser found that it wasn't the right man. This would prove to be a recurring theme of the investigation. At the coroner's inquest that Friday morning, Captain Musser testified that the man looked to weigh about 200 pounds. Another witness, Earl Dash, testified to seeing the man and described him as large and slightly stoop-shouldered. The killer would prove to be a tough man to find. In the days and weeks following Chief Struble's murder, law enforcement were kept busy following clues, leads, and rumors, Sheriff Campbell and his men leaving no possibility uninvestigated. The actual movements of the investigation were largely undisclosed to the public, which led folks to believe that the apprehension of the murderer would happen at any time. It was even reported that two persons were kept under surveillance. However, that wasn't to be, though several men were arrested on suspicion of being the killer that law enforcement sought. A man fitting the description of the murderer was arrested in Morton, Illinois, near Peoria. 
Deputy Sheriff Samuels accompanied a witness by the name of Miss Dora Rary, who lived at the home of W.J. Carroll and was on the porch the night of the murders, to Morton to make an identification of the man, but she returned, stating that he wasn't the man she'd seen that night. Another apprehended suspect was Frank Nelson. He fit the general description and had been acting nervous and suspicious of anyone approaching him in the fields in Pena where he was working. Nelson apparently spoke frequently of the murder and asked if anyone had been arrested. It was because of this odd behavior that the farmer notified the Pena authorities, who told him to alert them if Nelson tried to leave the farm. A short time later, Nelson informed the farmer that he was quitting and wanted his pay, but the farmer lied and said he needed to go to town to get his money, using this as an excuse to contact the police. However, Nelson left while the farmer was gone and was later found hiding in a boxcar at a small train station near Pena. Nelson's contradictory stories about his whereabouts the night of the murder made him look even more suspicious, and he was held in a Decatur jail until his story could be verified. He looked like a likely suspect, as he owned a forty-four caliber weapon, the same caliber that had killed Chief Struble, a casing of which had been found in W.J. Carroll's yard. Nelson had also once killed a man near Aurora ten years prior, but had been acquitted by reason of self-defense. The two women that Nelson had said he was with corroborated his story, saying he was with them until 9.30 that evening. It was also found that his gun hadn't been fired in months and was so rusted that it wasn't fit to use. And finally, both Captain Musser, now acting chief of police, the promotion eventually becoming official and permanent in August, and Mr. Sant said that Nelson wasn't the man they'd seen. Another suspect that was sought at the time was Tom Andrews. He was a known fighter, though most who knew him felt he wouldn't be a thief or was likely to carry a concealed weapon. Musser also felt the man wasn't the murderer. However, Deputy Sheriff Samuels went to the small town of Hillview where Andrews had reportedly been digging ditches, but couldn't find him. Since officials had little faith that he was involved, no further efforts were made to pursue him. At some point, a man by the name of Charles Worth, who had been arrested for stealing his wife's trunk, was also held on suspicion of Chief Struble's murder, but he was ultimately released and he was later arrested in Burlington, Iowa for stealing watches and jewelry. As the months wore on and despite the reward offered, the killer had yet to be arrested. There was even doubt that should someone be arrested, they might not be convicted of murder or even manslaughter. Chief Musser was also worried about rumors circulating that he'd killed Chief Struble by mistake. However, he'd been carrying a twenty-two that night, having loaned his usual revolver to someone else, and it wasn't returned until after the murder. Chief Struble had been killed with a forty-four. This rumor would come back to haunt Chief Musser years later. By February of 1911, a new suspect was identified, and this time it seemed that law enforcement had finally identified the right man. John Jack Weir was no stranger to trouble. Raised in Lincoln, Illinois, he was a member of a rather notorious family, with the name Weir appearing in numerous police reports. His brother Arthur was serving a 25-year sentence for using fire to torture an elderly couple to make them reveal the location of the money they had hidden in their home. It was suspected that John Weir, or one of his brothers, was also responsible for the death of Frank Froer of Lincoln. A prosperous mine owner, Froer was on his way to one of his mines with a large sum of money to pay his workers when he was assaulted and robbed, dying later of his injuries. 
At the time of Chief Struble's murder, Ware was on parole for attempted murder. He had been given 14 years for allegedly disemboweling a man, but had only served four. Once out on parole, a drunken altercation led him to nearly beating a man to death with a pool cue. He would successfully evade authorities for three years until he was finally arrested for Chief Struble's murder in 1913. Weir was known in Clinton. Sheriff Campbell had arrested him six years prior for stealing chickens and then selling them. It was thought he was found in Hamilton, Illinois in 1911, and Sheriff Armstrong went to apprehend him. However, he ended up taking the wrong Weir brother into custody. Instead of John, he arrested Robert, both of whom were using the last name Morgan at the time. When the Weir matriarch learned of her son's arrest, she informed the sheriff that he'd arrested the wrong one. She then boasted that John was in another state and that the authorities would never catch him. The Weir family seemed to be working together to keep John hidden. Two years later, in November of 1913, John Weir was arrested in Des Moines, Iowa for breaking into a freight car. Sheriff Armstrong and State's Attorney Williams traveled there to transport the man back to Clinton in order to stand trial for the slaying of Chief Struble. It was reported that Weir was in good humor when he arrived in Clinton, putting his hands in front of his face when someone tried to take a picture and then kidding the man about it. When talking with a reporter from the Clinton Register, he reportedly said, quote, I don't look like a wild man, do I? Naturally, he proclaimed his innocence, though he did boast about evading the authorities for three years and laughed at the mistaken arrest of his brother. It was also reported that he'd previously assaulted two other sheriffs in order to escape, which caused Sheriff Armstrong to take stronger precautions. Despite his claim of innocence, there was gossip around town that he'd confessed. According to reports, Weir had been following street fairs in Iowa, making friends who knew him by the name of McDaniels. One night while drinking together, he noticed a scar on the back of one man's hand. In the casual conversation that followed, Weir said that he had similar scars incurring from shooting Chief Struble. He told the group that he was out on parole but wanted for breaking it. He'd been living with a woman on the south side of Clinton, and he knew that Sant kept beer in the icebox on his porch, and he'd gotten into the habit of stealing it. One night, he wasn't sure if the Stants were home, and he ended up backing into the arms of Chief Struble. He recounted the struggle and claimed that the shooting was in self-defense. He also told them that Musser had shot at him and hit him in the arm, causing the scars that they were discussing. As it turned out, one of the men in the group Weir allegedly confessed to was from Macon County, and he relayed that story to his father on a visit home. The man's father then informed the state's attorney in DeWitt County. Police tracked down the woman Weir was supposedly living with at the time, Bertha Smith, who was reportedly of questionable character, and arrested her, but nothing could be proven against her. However, authorities believed they had enough against Weir to go to trial. The grand jury convened on Monday, November 24, 1913. Herbert Morris, who'd been acting as a special policeman at the time of the murder, testified that Weir was the man Struble had identified as the suspect who'd been sneaking around Sant's yard the first night the chief conducted surveillance on the back porch. Morris was then told to watch Weir as a suspect. Tony Musser had since moved to Decatur but returned to Clinton for the trial. He testified at the grand jury hearing that John Weir was the man who shot Chief John Struble. Another witness, a man who'd been in jail in Fort Dodge, Iowa at the same time as Weir, claimed that Weir had said he'd, quote, cleaned up the Clinton police. A crowded courtroom heard Weir enter a not guilty plea. 
He was then appointed two attorneys, Mr. Stone and Mr. Gray, as he and his family didn't have the funds to hire representation. The trial was then scheduled to begin on December 8th with jury selection. State's attorney L.O. Williams and attorney John Fuller would be prosecuting and Judge Cochran would be overseeing the proceedings. The trial itself lasted from that Wednesday, December 10th, until the next Friday, the 19th. The prosecution laid out their case, including their eyewitnesses. The defense countered with multiple witnesses presenting a solid alibi for John Weir, whom they all knew as John Morgan. Weir was reportedly working in Scioto on the farm of Harvey Murphy, who testified along with his wife and their neighbor, Elmer Briner. Briner testified that he'd gone through the threshing run and pitched bundles of straw with Weir. His uncle, Samuel Beck, said that Weir's mother kept house for him and that he was the one who secured Weir's employment on Murphy's farm. Other witnesses testified to having seen Weir working on Murphy's farm in June and in the harvest field in July. And E.N. Stansbury, a concrete foreman, stated that he'd employed Weir in November and December of 1910, mixing concrete. The defense also had testimony from Texas Township resident Jack McKinney, who was blind. He testified that he'd overheard Tony Musser saying that it was so dark the night Chief Struble was shot that he couldn't be sure of who did it. He swore that he recognized Musser's voice. Weather observer Frank Ziegler somewhat corroborated Mr. McKinney's testimony, stating that it was cloudy the night Chief Struble was killed and would have been quite dark. The prosecution offered their rebuttal, providing testimony from Mr. A. Young of Beeson, who stated that he'd met Weir and Beeson the morning after Struble's death. The two men had been alone at the time. Herbert Morris also testified that while he was accompanied by Chief Struble and Tony Musser, he'd seen Weir on the street on the afternoon of July 11th, just days before the murder. The two sides made their closing arguments, and the case went to the jury at 10 p.m. on Friday the 19th. They returned with a verdict at 11.30 p.m. Not guilty. However, John Weir was far from a free man. Chief John Struble was remembered as a good husband and a kind father. It was said that when his body was taken home after his death, the scene was so touching that even strong men wept. He was buried in Woodlawn Cemetery. No one else was ever tried for his death. His murder was never officially solved. Thank you for joining us. For more information about the Vespasian Warner Public Library District, please go to vwarner.com.